It's a Feynman story. Can I stick one in? You'd love it. Um, he comes to my office. He says, Pollitzer, I got, I, let, let me try this one on you. He's finally got some line explanation on, on something that a lot of us have been struggling with. And in Feynman's version, there's a lot of body English in it and not, nothing on the blackboard, okay? But he's got a story. And uh, at the end, he finishes. He looks at me. And I look at him. I said, Feynman, do you believe any of that? And he said, I will quote Emerson. I think it's Emerson. It wasn't a quote that I'd ever heard before. He said, I will quote Emerson. On thin ice, our safety is in our speed. And he's out the door. <laughs> Talking to people about dark matter and neutrinos can be funny. Surely you're joking. Hopefully, yes. What a wonderful universe. Okay, welcome to Surely You're Joking, a podcast about science and comedy colliding in a furious flash. Um, this is, uh, I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Peter Hickerson, and today my co-hosts with me are Griff Pippen. Hey, what's Hi, up? Griff, great comedian. Uh, uh, Jimmy O. Yang. Dr. Jimmy O. Yang. Dr. Jimmy <laughs> 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 Take two aspirin. Can you go to jail for uh, falsifying credit like that? Call me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Make it happen. And we have, of course, the very popular Bachelor's Owen. degree. Owen Benjamin. <laughs> Owen Benjamin. <laughs> and we're very excited today to have a very special guest. <laughs> Our very first guest, actually even more special, and a friend of mine for the last 10 years. He's a great guy, great professor here at uh, Cal tech his name is uh david pulitzer hello that's that's me that's 10 you. years that's scary <laughs> yep i know time and, flies uh, when you're having fun this guy has the most amazing resume i'm so jealous of this i can only aspire to this someday uh of course the thing he's most famous for is winning the 2004 nobel prize in physics for the uh for partially dis uh, discovering uh, asymptotic freedom and quantum chromodynamics. He did that along with uh, David Gross and Frank Wilczek, also both great people. Um, I will get, I'll let you explain that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you also, you got your PhD at Harvard. That must have been fun. He's a uh, heavy hitter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really smart uh, right uh, now. Right. And, uh, of course, as you'll explain later, I think, um, one of the things that's most famous about your Nobel Prize is that it was not only your first paper, which is very impressive, first paper out of grad school, I believe, and also Wait. it, No. All right. <laughs> we can't hear you. We can't. A, I know, I know. <laughs> anyway, when, when I gave physics talks, which I used to do, I would always ask the person who had like a sheet with my name on it and stuff, could you keep it really short so that we could <laughs> talk about something interesting? All right. Yeah, that's another thing I love about you. You're actually very modest about the Nobel Prize, and I love that. Um, and uh, some other interesting facts. I'm so sorry, I'm going to keep going with this. Uh, you're also, Stephen Wolfram was your student? Um, well, I, he, did, um, he didn't need teaching. <laughs> I've noticed I mean, that, he needed yeah. somebody to sign the paper. I did work with him, and it was a real pleasure. Mm -hmm. And the thing he uh, did is he got out of here as fast as possible, completely opposite of me. I stayed in grad school until I was in my late 30s. Stephen Wolfram, wow. I think, got his PhD at the age of 21. 
I well, believe. we tried to keep him, and uh, the administration screwed him over, and he left in a huff. Oh, okay. It's a good man. Yeah, and he's nice. now uh, runs a very successful company, Wolfram Alpha, which makes Mathematica software. Um, and uh, also, so let's just say hi. I'll keep it short. I'll bring up the other ones throughout the day. <laughs> I could have commented on even the things that you did uh, reel off there, but uh, a lot of them not too interesting one way or the other. Okay, I look I, great. I look great. That's why <laughs> we're doing see that. podcast yeah. audio. <laughs> For me as a common man, I just think it's so cool to be sitting next to like a Nobel Prize winner. That's like the Oscar for humanity, right? <laughs> yeah, basically. Like, way yeah. better than it is, an Oscar. Yeah. No, no, for humanity. I mean, Oscars for actors yeah. and Nobel Peace Prize or Nobel uh, Physics Prize. That's like for humanity. The 3-6 Mafia has an Oscar. True, <laughs> true. Yeah, that's not wow. Wait, no, this really crash has an Oscar. Has a Nobel Prize, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, Obama yeah. got what did he just like on the first day? That was like waiting Obama, for Obama, uh, Henry uh, Kissinger, Yasser Arafat. Yeah. Those are real peace prizes, men of peace, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's so cool how dumb you make me feel. It's just great. Wait, what did I do? Just make just you feel dumb. Resume, You're doing it on your action. own, your, man. Your resume is amazing. Wait, wait, resume. Nobel People, like, it's kind of like the panda bears in the zoo. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't many of them. Right. So people want to be able to say, I went to the zoo and I saw one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're hardly going to even look what, or read the thing because they, you got to read, right? But they saw a panda bear and uh-huh. they've joined the few. So sitting next to one, you know, is some, you have joined the people who have sat next to one. <laughs> the question is, what are you going to do with it? Do you want bamboo? No, there are people who looked at me when he asked that question. I don't know why. I don't know. It's not in my life I can ask that and not have it be offensive to Asian people. I understood. Oh, I understood. No one really likes Jimmy. analogies. He takes them very literally. Then. Right, but I'm even more literal. The first thing I thought is people talk about bamboo for banjos, and it's kind of uh, very avant-garde out there, and maybe... I'm not sure. I'm a traditionalist. Bamboo, pandas, Maple. Nobel Prize, all in under 60 seconds. Well, with the this Nobel is great. Prize, after winning the Nobel Prize, did it did, did something drastically change? Obviously, it's a ton of respect from the community, I would assume, right? Um, no. Did, did See, people, you're no, wrong. It's, it's, nothing, no. it's just full of misconceptions. <laughs> well, that's why I'm here, because I, yeah, I give the common man's the community conceived okay. ideas. I use that at bars. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are people who knew or know what the stuff was about mm-hmm. and they knew about it at the time and that was i don't know 1973 1974 uh-huh. it did have a huge impact on the field which is one of the fundamental frontiers of physics and uh, you know it made sense nobel prizes mark uh, milestones in the progress of science and that mm-hmm. was one of them okay mm-hmm. so fast forward decades um the people who know anything about it nothing changed and then it's a pain in the, in the butt because, you know, there's, uh, this is okay, th- th- what we're doing here now. <laughs> this is totally cool and to talk about it. But, you know, there's invitations from the people who they've got a list. They got the pandas on the list, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. they got the Nobel laureates. And, you know, come, show up. 
we don't care what you think. We don't care what you're going to say. Just show up because we know if we advertise it, the audience is going to show up because they want to see the panda bear. They don't really care about what you have to say. <laughs> In fact, it's really important act, you know, to make these things work that you don't say anything that puts them on edge mm -hmm. a little or offends which them which or we straightens them out yep. or, or challenges their, you know, the, the ones who are, you know, science challenged they don't want to be challenged further so you etc is there a secret brotherhood of nobel winners that hang out <laughs> they divide into groups and i think there are ones who hang um <laughs> but they're ones who really try hard to do what they would have done had it never happened to them and that that's a that's a challenge. It's not a full time job, but it it takes a, a certain amount of energy to keep a focus on what it is that you would have done. Now there are other people who parlay it into uh, a new gig, right. right? The director of such and such or some, and they puff themselves up very big. That is totally what I would do. When, and you make I, dinner reservations, do you say Nobel Prize winner? I've never done it. <laughs> so like when <laughs> they call your name out at like P.F. Chang's. Do they say like Nobel Prize winner? Because I would do that. <laughs> Nobel Prize winners don't go to PF Chang's. Also, yeah. I gotta yeah. say, come on, they're going to wait, David. I know that he's very. I go to In and Out with my sport. kid. I go to Subway Sandwich. Um, I used to take my kid to Sizzler. Nice. Um, See, they do go there. See, Nobel Prize winners go to Sizzler. <laughs> it's not the world I thought I lived in. Well, it closed in the one I knew in Pasadena. I don't know <laughs> what. So <laughs> That's so sad, man. Yeah. What kind of music do you like to play? Do I like to play? I had a conversation with my wife just last night who was alarmed at what she saw to be a change because there's music that I like, which is very broad, and then there's the music that I can actually make sound like music. Right. And that, that involves you know, what, what you can do. Hmm. So I, I play harm. I think the one that sounds most like a real musician um, is a blues harp. Because oh, I've, awesome. I've been doing that since my voice changed. I was so heartbroken. I was in a boys' choir as a kid. And then, you know, I opened the mouth and out came those frog sounds. And I got a harp. And so I've been blowing that since. Um, banjo. I, these days it's called claw hammer. But when I was young, we called it frailing. Because uh, three finger picking is. Um, uh, I'll leave that to the <laughs> alien intelligence and dexterity. Um, that's real hard, but there are people who do it, and I love that music. But there's all kinds of music I love. Uh, I love it when banjo players play Bach. I mean, I love Bach. So I, I love this about you. When I, when I come and visit you sometimes, even to talk about physics, you've just got like your array of banjos out there because uh, you don't just play banjo. You have started dabbling in, in making them. Do you want to tell us about that? Wait, wait. I, I, I love that. I, I, I got to ask, though. Do you think there's a science behind making a song uh, emotional versus funny? Because I'm trying to figure out what that <laughs> algorithm is. <laughs> trying to figure Cause out his next album I, here. I'll, no, because I'll listen to love songs, quote unquote, like Celine Dion, and then I'll listen to like one of my songs. It's funny. <laughs> and I think mine are more realistic and less insane. <laughs> so I want to know, is there a scientific algorithm that can make something funny versus sad? I thought every song on a banjo was funny, but I, I just oh, I got that no. wrong. <laughs> no, you mentioned Steve Martin. He's one of the people who knows. I mean, he says, you know, he went on stage when he was young with the arrow through his head and the banjo. And the first thing he says about, you know, how can you cry when you have a banjo music? No, he's written about the fact that it's fundamentally a very sad 
Um, it's got those uh, Celtic Gaelic fifth sounds, tonally not unlike the bagpipes, and it's got a kind of set potential, huge potential for sadness. I think the funniest stuff does. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's part of what why we're laughing to yeah. keep from you, crying. You <laughs> yeah, have combined yeah. and created something here. I'm reading on your resume is banjo physics. That sounds crazy to me because I think of banjo and think rednecks and Appalachians, and then physics. <laughs> Two worlds colliding. What exactly is banjo physics? Um, I had a chance. I volunteered for uh, to teach a course here just a few years ago for freshmen. Um, the idea was that uh, they wanted to have small groups of freshmen in a seminar class, senior faculty doing something out of the ordinary, because Caltech is mostly nose to the grindstone. And the faculty were very enthusiastic about that proposal. We should require it for everyone until they counted. Well, if you have just like a, a 10 or 12 students and one senior faculty, we're going to have to offer a lot of these courses. No, we can't require it. Okay. But they asked for volunteers, and I did. And I have my students do a project of their own choice and design. And the second time around, I thought, I should do one in parallel. And I had built a banjo long before I studied physics when I was a high school kid. And I built a few over the years. And I know kind of design decisions, how they work, why you do this, why you do that, how it sound changes if you do it differently. And I had one leftover question where, how can we do it that way? Why is it like that? And so that was my project. And I've been doing related projects ever since. It's about four years now. So how it makes, what is it in the physical object that produces the sound? But that gets to your question about songs, which is, if you're talking about a uh, science of music or acoustic of mu acoustics of music, when you say music, you don't mean just sound in general. You mean it has to make contact with people. Right. Exactly. It's kind of like the Zen thing, and what it, you know, when the tree falls in a forest and make noise. If there's sound, is it music? Not until somebody listens and reacts. Right. And those reactions, uh, from <laughs> all the work I've done with my class and concentrating on it, I don't know if to call it science, but it's very far from the science that I do, which is to say it has to do with people and culture and to what extent we want things that are familiar, because otherwise we feel very nervous or right. alienated, but we want a little that's new, we want to be tickled a little bit, and then that balance is different for different people. People point out that young children, they like it the same. So they, those children's songs, just again and again, and when you're done, they want to sing it again. And right. when you come to the end of the book, they want to read the book again. And depending on how grown up you are, you <laughs> might be more adventurous about how much is new. Right. And that's true of jazz or whatever. You know, if you're immersed in it, you want a little something new. So these are, my students always want to know what makes it sound good. They want a science answer that has formulas in it. And right. I, what I do then is I just get something from online, a YouTube of music from the other side of the world. Not music where uh, our culture has already been so stirred up and combined with it. Like the African music in, Ameri in the Americas, that's, a, that's like part of our DNA at this point. Yeah. But uh, Korean music, Japanese music, Chinese music, uh, Southeast Asia, um, uh, Indonesia. No, those things seem really pretty weird to people who didn't grow up there. I mean, at Caltech, I have students who did grow up there, and that's also interesting to right. get this all going together. But 
what sounds good has a lot to do with what you've heard since you were little and what your uh, emotional association is with it. There, so I think that's why probably a lot of pop songs have the same exact hook that you've heard before, you, and then it's very familiar, and you can sing along with it. But that's what I feel like that's would make it good. It, you sell some records, but what makes a great song is, like you said, is something different and something kind but of... But not totally. It's that surprise that comes in. I mean, one thing again, so there are people who study music i know more about music than i i mean just instrumental music but um it's pointed out that uh, machine generated music like a, a, a midi file people can recognize right away it has nothing to do with how well it's imitating the instruments but the fact that it's boom 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 it's right in and no performance is like that and even right. when you try and put in random numbers no 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 so the good performer knows how to he's got a good drummer and a good bass and they set that thing up and everybody in the audience they've got it going the beat 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 in their head and that performer then is pulling you and pushing you at the right time when he right. wants to ah and he gets you and but he gets I, bet, you. I bet computers will get good at it and right before they do I think it's going to be creepy as hell there's going to be because like you said right now you can it's tell like facial recognition yeah yeah with uh, AI it's like when it right. gets really close it's like the scariest and yeah then, and then yeah, after that, we just handle it, I guess. But yeah, have you I'm read, not worried. Have you read okay. This Is Your Brain on Music? There's a book. Yeah, uh, that's our, that's, I begin my class. That's the reading we do together. We read Great. it chapter by chapter. That's awesome. And I tell my students, uh, have a piece of paper. I like paper and, you know, writing implement. If there's something that's really wild or cool or something you don't understand, write it down and we bring it in and talk about it around the table. Um, that's a great introduction to what is music, what is neurobiology, how do our brains work. Um, the guy is a cool guy who's come through Caltech a couple of times. Fun to Dan Levitin. Yeah, Dan Levitin. Um, good to talk to. I, I like that book. As And then at the end, I have my students go to Amazon.com and read the reader's reviews. And in fact, I tell them you have to read at least six five stars and six one stars. Right. And then we talk about it. Interesting. About, you know... How, so they're the Caltech kids who get really annoyed. They say, the book was full of errors. They're mistakes. <laughs> and, if, and if he can't get this right, if he can't get the ratio of the this to this to this right, well, how can you believe anything he says? <laughs> wow. You know, and I, can anybody utter, you know, more than two words without something being not quite, per I don't know. So that's interesting to then have the students discuss with each other because most I, of them like it because i do a podcast called why didn't they laugh where i analyze why a joke works or doesn't work and i also play piano and i think <laughs> what you're uh it, like i just did an episode called what makes a love song and i think what you're hitting on is that uh, like that reptilian part of the brain that that registers fear will let something in and be like we know this and then the novelty either sparks emotion with sadness or laughter and i, I was wondering if you have any uh, thoughts on that no, the only thing that crossed my mind was a love song has to make some contact with Mama. Ooh. Interesting. Mm. That's deep. You know David Allen Coe? No, I don't. Country singer. Oh, probably okay. older than I am. But I was driving in my car, and on the radio comes a country song. And he's telling this, he's telling that uh, Steve Goodwin, I think so, sent me this song. And he sings it, and then uh, he says, yeah, but I, I sang it, and I wrote back to Steve. I said... That Steve's had said, who's a great songwriter, was, I think he passed away, Coe is still alive, um, that this was the, it is not the greatest country and western song ever written, because it doesn't say anything about trains, 
trucks, <laughs> uh, prison, mama. And so he got a, a verse, which I will not sing for you, but it, it ties together, you know, being drunk and prison and trucks and trains now, speaking and, of sing- and mama. Speaking of singing, I, I don't know if you want this brought up, but prison. it's too late. I have that you also, I, this is something I only just learned about you, that you sang a vocal song in the 1980s. Professor Pulitzer and the Roe Masons. Which wow, I, I am, get that. But now I used, sure I was really, we, I used to have it on the wall in my office, but uh-huh. I moved offices too many times. It was a letter from Doctor Demento. It was a rejection letter. Ouch. We were so oh, bad, we were rejected <laughs> by Doctor Demento. Um, this was two students of mine, Caltech sophomore physics, mm-hmm. physics majors, and it's a while ago now. And the song was the simple harmonic oscillator. Yeah, it's a simple, the, and right. it's still it. Well, it's <laughs> online. You can, yeah. un, for better or worse, been you talking can, about mama. You can, <laughs> mama is it's mama and some going to prison and beer in there. You're good to go. That well, see, that was the problem. They asked me. They came to me. You have the date there, and asked me if I would wrap a physics lecture, and <laughs> I immediately thought of Hallmark cards. Right, I, I didn't know what they what I, I didn't know what they were talking about, so they had to explain to me what <laughs> it was to wrap a physics lecture, and uh, they produced uh, a a drum tape, okay, right. and uh, a tentative rap, and it went back and forth between us. We all did editing, and it's got. It, it 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 does the formula. It's got no mistakes in it. It's got the formulas for the simple harmonic oscillator, and um, it's pretty cool. I'm kind of proud of it. That's Great. awesome. I'm a- they used to play it. There were tapes, and they used to play it in the campus coffee house, the Red Door, at odd hours. And every once in a while, I'd be walking across campus, and someone would say, Professor Pollitzer. And they're just stunned. I, 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 I they, they can't get it out. I heard something last night. Was that re- really you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah That's funny. Can. That's awesome. Um, another interesting thing about you. Uh, you know, one of the, I got to throw this out there. One of the things that's great, the fact that I know you, is I knew you before and after your Nobel Prize. So I can help answer those so did those I. questions. I know that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you, you know, you get to see the difference. It really, you know, he didn't. Change the same guy. Humble so, guy uh, over yeah. here. Mm, <laughs> you haven't been listening. <laughs> uh, not not very changed. That could be his true. album dropped on Caltech. Grows <laughs> <laughs> pineapples. Uh, uh, but uh, oh yeah, do you grow pineapples? Not really plural. A pineapple. Um, no, a I pineapple use- once. Well, <laughs> 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 All right, that puts no, no, you in no, the club. No, no, no. It's right more there. amazing than that. Which is, I um, well, there's even a story there. I was um, vi- being offered jobs at various prestigious places. I won't. Which it's not important what they were, but you know, they they you meet with people, talk science, but then there's some dinner and stuff. So some guys chatting with me, and I'm just so excited about my garden. <laughs> I'm recently, I may be living in California for about a 
not more than two years. And he said, and where did you grow up? I said, New York City. He said, yeah, all you city boys are real excited when you get a chance to grow things. So I was, you know, had house plants in the window, these miserable things in, in like Boston that, you know, it's, the, the weather is impossible. You got it in the window and you're trying to get it to grow. When I came out here, you stick anything anywhere if you water it. So I had, um, I thought it was cool. You know, I read somewhere how to, uh, Take the pineapple you get at um, the supermarket and eat the pineapple and get a pineapple plant. There's, there's awesome. a certain. I could tell you thought it was important because I saw it on your webpage. That's how I found well, out. It's I like got... pictures of him getting the Nobel Prize, picture playing the banjo, and then like the eight pineapple. pictures of this well, pineapple. The deal, <laughs> so I had these beautiful plants that just got two of them got bigger and bigger in pots outside my house. And one year, son of a gun, it took a few years, this thing. This thing appeared on a stalk. It was this um, sort of egg-shaped thing with little bumps, and the bumps opened up into little purple flowers, deep purple. I think that's one of the pictures. And yeah, to be one, sure, yeah. <laughs> it got big enough that it was, it, it was, the first one was not supermarket size, but it was delicious, a pineapple. Um, and then the same plants put out other shoots subsequent years. They got littler. So really, you should, you know, if you're really dole pineapple in Hawaii, you should start. Oh, over time, each one, each batch Well, it was from the same pot, et cetera, et cetera. But oh, okay. I, I just was stunned to have a pineapple that I could eat. That's amazing. That's wow. cool. Was it very emotional when you ate your pineapple? Well, I, sh <laughs> I shared it with my mom, who was living in San Diego at the time, and I took half of it down to her because I knew she really was fond at that point of her life of pineapples. And I said, Mom, I grew this. She was about 90, and uh, yeah. Wow. No, I, I, nice I thought it was gorgeous, that, the, the little purple flowers and stuff. When I was about 10, my dad uh, made us um, raise some chickens, and then one day I came home, we were just cooking it. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. I ate it. It was delicious, but I, I think I was crying. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> and understood. <laughs> I just chopped the head off a couple roosters because they were abusing the hens, and, uh, <laughs> and we did it in front of the hens. It was like a weird act of feminism. <laughs> so like, is this who hurt you? Bam! And then the hands were just like clapping a little and being really happy. They're like dinosaurs. You look up close on one of those chickens, they're they look like a T-Rex. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Kentucky There's some program where they said cuts they both said they ways could... though, no more chicks. Well, you no. can sit on those eggs for, no, we're for not a killing century. Hens. We're killing roosters. I, they're laying eggs, but there's no more. Wait a minute. Send this guy back to. Uh, <laughs> well, we there's don't no want, more. We don't fertilize chicks. the eggs. I don't know how we went from pineapples to murdering chickens. Wait, that's what fast. the roosters were. That was no. Well, wait they a won't minute. Grow. Well, I'm won't. not going to talk. No, they, 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 they just still lay eggs. They'll just never hatch. Wait, wait, wait. Roosters, hens, abusing the hens. Yeah. They didn't fertilize the eggs? Well, no, because <laughs> we don't want them fertilized. To grow, you know, you got to fertilize them to grow a chicken, but not wait, just to wait, get wait, the Wait, do you do eggs. that or does the rooster do that? I, I've i been banging the hens. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted those roosters out of there. I'm out <laughs> of my How much did you drink? <laughs> well, I was really hydrated, obviously. <laughs> you talking water? Yeah. See, we could get back to physics and safer ground there. Speaking yeah, so. of physics. Uh, I was put in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of physics, uh, you also uh, knew Richard Feynman. And uh, this show is, of course, uh, surely you're joking, is a reference to Feynman's book. 
Um, unfortunately, I never got to meet him, and I and but you did, and you have a lot of really interesting stories about that. We overlapped for ten years. He was down the hall and uh, here most of the time. Um, very ornery, but very accessible. Uh, he, you know, if he wouldn't let anybody waste his time. Uh, he was pretty blunt. And um, did he make you call him Professor Feynman? No, Feynman is Feynman. I mean, oh, you called him Feynman. Okay, you call him Feynman. He was, uh, and he called people by their last name, just their last name. Oh, that's so all. it wasn't it wasn't hypocritical. It's just no, like no. That's thing. his time. Okay, that's in great. his time, the only person who didn't call him Feynman was Murray Gell-Mann, who called him by his first name, I guess, one thing <laughs> or the other. But anyway, Feynman called people by their last name. Um, it led to some confusion. I remember he uh, kind of was came in one day and was sort of disappointed that there was this guy named Ellis who he thought was doing all this great physics because Ellis wrote papers on um, very imaginative, speculative stuff and did very careful calculations and did um, uh, data analysis. And he was heartbroken when he found out it was actually three different guys. <laughs> <laughs> so one of them was John Ellis? One of them was John Ellis. Yeah, so I, I actually met two John Ellis's, but I hung out with the John Ellis at the Royal Society in England, and that guy is hilarious. I would, I would also like him to be on the show yeah, some point. He is so funny. Him. Yeah, he is this awesome. When the when the Higgs was discovered, high school students sent him a hand knitted uh, a sweater with the standard model Lagrangian. <laughs> Bosin is that the other guy's name? Bosin. Does he get a little bummed that everyone keeps calling it Higgs? Everyone's like Higgs, and it's like, what's the other guy? It's Bozen. Is he ever Bose? No, he's fine. He is. He has half of all particles. Dave and Buster's. Imagine if Dave and Buster's was just called. That's what you're talking about. No, no, Higgs is a subset. Boson should be just fine because half of all particles. No sense of humor. That guy. Half of all particles are Dave. Your statement has flaws. Yeah, that's not. When he's pulling your leg under the table, you don't feel it. <laughs> um, no, uh, John Ellis' story, I remember they were going to turn on the LH LHC. This is a, a physics and a media story. So this is this big collider in Geneva, which would have been dwarfed by the collider that was being built in Texas 20 years earlier, and Congress cut it. Anyway, so they're going to turn on this big particle physics thing, and there's some talk about, well, yeah, it's possible that when the proton hits another proton head on, you can make a black hole and the black hole's going to eat the earth. And we're all gone. And there were people discussing that in the media as to whether we should worry about this and whether we should let them turn it on. And what struck me was that uh, major news outlets then, I saw this on TV, uh, found two experts who would reassure us that everything's okay. So one is they go to John Ellis. Now, I remember the visual. John Ellis has straggly, long, white hair. He's sitting at his desk with stacks of papers dwarfing him under him. It looks like, I mean, he's like some wild wizard, and he's telling you it's going to be okay. If you're a mom in Ohio, are you comforted They're by like, this the image? The bomber says it's cool. Right. And the other one who they went to was Stephen Hawking. Uh -huh. Okay? And that's my question. Is this a comfort? I mean, that man wants to you know, be on the Simpsons show, go to Disneyland, and be shot into space. <laughs> and has just different 
concerns than the rest of us, right? Yeah. I mean, I understand he's going to outlive me for sure, but um, I just think they could have gone to people who'd be more reassuring. If yeah, I, yeah, I don't think John. I mean, I'll show you guys a picture. Of, we'll put it on the website too, but. Yeah, if he, he if he came out and said it's all fine, guy, like he's exactly the guy they cast in a movie right before, like yeah, the universe gets sucked up. He looks like up. one of the guys on Ancient Aliens. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but like, older than wiser. He looks yeah. like a wizard. Yeah, he looks like a wizard. <laughs> like, or Merlin says it's cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and now that he has this sweater, he wears that everywhere. <laughs> like the, the standard <laughs> bottle. Standard of model. If you walked yeah. around with dwarves, people would think they were looking for a ring. <laughs> right. You got it. That's the picture. Yeah. So, like, the real legit, like, science community, obviously, I come from a very peasant standpoint. Um, like, are, are you guys saying, like, um, it's like Stephen Hawkins, like, the, the people that are on TV, are they kind of consider what we'll call, like, a sellout? Uh, no, no, he's allowed to do that. Yeah. Come on. Okay. That, that, no, no, I'm just asking. First of know. all, that has, I, I, I don't know, but it has something to do with him being able to stay alive and do interesting work. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it's a it's it, it's a technical feat, okay. Aside from just has anybody survived as long as he has with his condition, but to keep him going, technical feat, and he does very interesting stuff. There's no doubt about that. And I think he's used his fame really well. I mean, I think he channels it into helping answer questions for people that people want to, you know, like. There's plenty of physicists who are doing very esoteric stuff behind the scenes, and yeah, they might not, they, they might, you know, uh, they might get some, you know, academic praise for it, but you might not hear that in the public. But right. Stephen's he, really he's great pretty at, like, good at telling jokes. Yeah, at least to <laughs> the people right, yeah. who show up yep. for his talks. <laughs> and how much of a little bit of a dig was it to England that he made his voice American? <laughs> oh, Ooh, there's a story about that that's not told quite in the movie. Really? But that was the voice available by the guy who put the thing together. Because ah. it's from Texas, I think. Right? I think they, Texas did it. Texas Instruments, I believe. There weren't choices so. available. Interesting. Because I just read a book uh, about a guy that was in a coma for like 20 years, and he, and he has a similar situation, and his voice sounds almost like a superhero's. Like, I think now you can, like, choose, like, yeah. crazy voices. It's like, hello, I am here. And you're like, whoa, easy, Bane. <laughs> yeah, even on Waze, you can choose, like, Snoop Dogg, the Terminator or yeah. something. Maybe we can switch that up with him. <laughs> and even now, Hawkins, <laughs> Snoop Dogg. The Terminator's voice? To see if people will still listen to him. <laughs> the thing about nuclear <laughs> physics is yeah. that would be amazing. Well, so with Stephen Hawkins, um, in, in, I guess, a common man's mind, because he's the guy that's out front on TV. He's kind of, in my mind, oh, he's man you're on a hit hbo show Jamie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. i'm a super cool common man you know but um season three baby it's coming it's mm -hmm. coming man um well because we think like oh hey he's the guy that's in front of tv to me hey name the smartest guy on the planet i'll maybe i'll say stephen hawkins but is is he or there's plenty of people just as good as he is but just not a tv personality they don't have right exposure i i well we should ask the host too but uh, i mean the guests too but uh definitely i think the the public's connection of observation of who's the best scientist is not yeah. completely in sync. It doesn't mean that those, you know, they they don't have to be the same. I mean, what what do you think? I don't like the question. We don't. I mean, if if you're when you get really serious, I doesn't. Um, I don't like thinking about people that way. That's it's their ideas that are really interesting and really influential. They're people 
who've had one, there are people who've had a few, there are people who've had many, who's the, I don't know. And then you offend people and be, I don't like that. Something they show in movies all the time is they, a lot of people think that like, like scientists compare IQs and stuff. Like they do this right. in the Big Bang Theory and all sorts of things. <laughs> they think like, oh, I'm 175. Kind of like entertainers by the yeah. urinal. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 They think that yeah. we yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not something people actually do. I, I mean, do. like, yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I mentioned it. I mean, I know what you're working with. <laughs> <laughs> Judging you as a man. Yeah. That's it. And that's what they do. Let me see how big your brain is. <laughs> Um, but like we, people don't size. compare their IQs and stuff. I mean, right. like with smart it's people, that doesn't size. even make any sense anyway. Yeah, like, wait, like, I, IQ. It, IQ is just has nothing to do with it. But you know, you've seen movies where they do this. They think like we well, all, seen you know, like what's look, your right among you overrated. What? Do you think IQ is overrated? Totally, totally. Oh, yeah. Well, it depends on what you care about. So there's something reproducible. You give people the IQ test, and their high score means they're going to probably get a really high score the next time they take it. Right. That's about what it's good for. And I know in my business people who are real quick with complicated things. There are people who remember a lot of things. There are people who are good at putting things together that other people might not think of putting together. Feynman was awfully good at that. Um, there are all kinds of examples like... Um, I, I read he, he's notoriously had a low IQ. I'm not sure if that's a real story or not, but that's, he's clearly a very smart guy, but he, he had a... You well, know. the example I was going to give, there were fires um, on uh, the hillside, the mountains in the hillside. This is Southern California, the San Gabriel mm -hmm. Mountains. There are forest fires. We have these scraggly forests, but they're threatening because people build houses up close. Yep, and also, anyway, that's, right live above where now. he lived... <laughs> Okay, he was the only one in his neighborhood who bought flood insurance. Okay, so you got to just think a little. Okay, there's a fire. The stuff that used to kind of hold the water while it's coming down and get it to seep into the ground isn't there, so it's running off real quickly. Oh, yeah, it's running off quickly into those valleys and the gullies and whatever, and they're filling up with debris, Okay, and then it's just going to flood and the street's going to be deep in water and everybody's house is going to have water in the basement. And he's the only one in the neighborhood who has insurance because he figured, understood there was a connection between a forest fire and flooding where he lived. He's a mm -hmm. fucking genius. Yeah. Wow. That's brilliant. Okay, uh, there's, a long, there's a long list. He said to me, he said, yeah, people talk about the, the Feynman intuition. He knew that he was famous for the Feynman intuition. <laughs> Mostly... Um, he, so he's sitting in the audience of a science seminar talk. Someone's talking about their new work, and they're getting, I mean, he nails them. He raises his hand. He's got a question, an objection, whatever. Okay, where does this come from? I remember, as I said, I had 10 years overlapping. If I went to him with a question, often um, he'd go to the wall. He had a whole wall of shelves with notebooks, you know, like from elementary school, those bound with the marbly-looking blue and white whatever yeah, yeah. so he when he worked he wrote stuff down it's all in there and he pulled off the shelf a notebook that had his work on the subject because maybe now you know in his 60s he didn't remember and he looked at what he did and that reminded him and then we could talk about it which is to say in those seminars where you had that great intuition he'd actually thought about that problem before and worked on it quite possibly more than the person who was speaking Mm -hmm. wow. And there was example after example because he loved 
physics and he loved science and he loved figuring things out. He explained when he went and saw journal articles, he wouldn't read past, he'd read the title and maybe the beginning of what's called the abstract. And if it was interesting, he'd go and try and figure it out. So he worked on, and he could do it, okay? He, he was, also uh, he was smart. Forget about IQ. I don't care. The man was smart. Right. Uh, so uh, uh, what the, he wrote a book called QED, which I read in high school. And this book is amazing. I strongly recommend it. QED uh, in physics is quantum electrodynamics. It's the thing he's really most famous for coming up with. And um, uh, Pulitzer's Nobel Prize was an extension of QED called quantum chromodynamics related to that. Um, but what I love about this book is there is no math in this entire book. And I didn't know until I actually took formal QED formally at Caltech. But he was able to explain to me like how path integral work and all of that just with analogies to stopwatches and things like that. And that I just love that. I mean, the fact that he could do that, that you don't have to know any math, but you can learn this very intensely mathematical theory. Yeah. Some, can I give you a couple of Feynman things on the subject? First of all, there's a whole shelf in the Caltech bookstore of books by Caltech authors, and there's a lot of them by Feynman. He didn't write a single one. Oh, really? There's not a single book that he sat down and wrote. Holy cow, They're I didn't all know that. <laughs> from other people listening to him, taking copious notes, and always in the end, if his name is on it, he's looked at it, mm -hmm. often not too closely, yeah. okay? Including New York Times bestsellers, his stories. And surely his you're joking is the same way. Surely you're joking the same way. Anecdotes. And they're marvelous mm -hmm. reads. Um, the fine, famous Feynman lectures the same way. He gave the lectures to freshmen and then the next year to the same group as sophomores, physics lectures, and two other professors and a whole crew were transcribing and trying to get it into some form. The particular one that you picked reminded me that he would often say, you know, people want to hear the latest stuff when there's a physicist. They want to hear the latest stuff. And it always broke his heart because, first of all, there's a lot of old stuff that's really good and yeah, really yeah. cool, and it's rather hard to uh, have an appreciation of the latest stuff uh, <laughs> without knowing that, and most people don't. That happens so, a lot. Like uh, Owen's always asking me one of the favorite topics is uh, dark matter. Owen, you're always like, what is that stuff? But you never come up. You never come up to be like most of the universe. Yeah, I know. But you never come up and go, "Dude, what the fuck is a kaon?" <laughs> you know, tell me what a kaon is. Well, no, for me, it's all just like when someone's like, "Oh, everything you know and can touch is like five percent of the whole deal." I'm like, "Then there's what the hell's other the deal? stuff." But the there's even world. other stuff that we can make it a lab that also is just totally, you know, weird. All things. we know I, is that it pulls on the stuff that we know about. The stuff that we can see gets pulled on. Right, but we have a lot of reasons to believe that that other stuff isn't the ones we know about. Yeah, I'm not trying to science shame you. Here. That is not what's going because on. Because Newton just... was famous for understanding that the moon and the, the stuff up in the sky was the same stuff as down here. Right, and there was a lot of evidence for that. And then even further, that the the forces, the laws of nature that make the moon go around the earth were the same ones that make the apple fall from the tree, and he's famous for that. That's why right. we've got the apple thing going on. And then we find out that actually that's almost as wrong as it could be. So almost <laughs> all of this stuff is other stuff. It's just spread so thin that we haven't been able to grab onto it and know much about it. And the most important force, at least according to astronomers, once things get really far apart, when things get really far apart, there's another force that acts that we don't know anything about. Wow.
And it goes the other way. And it pushes them <laughs> apart. That's all we know. It, yep. And it, so it turns the whole physics thing on its head, except that where we are almost, at, well, not almost, Everything that we can get our hands on and do something with, we have an account for how it works. Right. It's just when we look out far, there's evidence of totally different shit, and we don't know what that is. <laughs> Let me just, just to come back to QED, the, the one subject that he wanted to explain, and he did it again and again, that's just one version of the public lecture he would give on basic quantum mechanics, which in that case he got to QED, but it starts with what's quantum mechanics, and he would give this lecture, and people, you know, he, he had that Queen's accent. He'd talk like that, and he knew that if he, he didn't have to talk like that, but that's how he grew up, and he knew that if he talked like that, people would believe, they could, they were understood it, right? If, if somebody talks to you like that, and it, you know, in sentences which have a stop at the end, a period, <laughs> and he didn't do up speak. Up speak? No, he didn't do that. He knew he was definitive, and you listened and you believed everything he said and once he left and you got up you didn't have a clue what he was talking about <laughs> that was one of the heartbreaks but if social you, dominance yeah if you studied it it was full of real world analogies and simple pictures and if you work through it there's a lot of value there for the person who's willing to work through it. So if, if there's a written version, they're really quite valuable. Yeah, I think that that's um, how I felt about it. Like, I didn't walk away from that book going like, oh, now I know how QED works. It was more a realization later after studying it, saying, you know, it's kind of like when you, you know, you're, you're told about something as a kid, but you're not told the whole story. Like in a Pixar movie where there's a joke the adults get and the kids <laughs> get, but they're different jokes. You know, one's a really dirty joke and the other one's like... SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah, yeah. Um, or uh, even in the movies, I think they get even dirtier. There'll be like a really dirty joke. There was a full-on dick joke in uh, Inside Out. I mean, there was. You watch The Little Mermaid. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> going on in there. I'm not even joking. Watch the scene where the the evil lady gets married to the dude. There's there's a boner scene in there. Hmm. Not okay. Animators notoriously can't stop drawing boners. <laughs> that's, a thing, I mean, dude. that's that's more powerful than the strong force in an atom. Uh. Yeah, it is. But when uh, I was a kid, there was soupy <laughs> sales on television, and I won't even go there. <laughs> I'm going to look it up, though. <laughs> he, he, he had a kid's Everybody show. Everybody Google <laughs> soupy sales. Yes. Right. The, the <laughs> safest thing he did was he told kids in the morning to go into their parents' room in the father's pants and get the wallet out and pull the and to send him some money. But that was, that was the, the – I mean, that's a clean thing. It's just a, a kind of unethical, and I don't know if it's illegal. But <laughs> he, he did. Anyway, a hero. So uh, I'd really love to hear, uh, you told me a um, great story about the spin statistics theorem. I love that story. I wonder if you want to tell that one again. Oh, man. It, that it's one slightly has, visual. That's that, the problem it's with it. It's kind of visual. visual. And it's got a lot of physics, but I'll, I'll see if I well, can. Well, don't, don't worry too much about the physics. Right. So he, I, lo I love the, the story. He's down the hall from me, and I turn the corner, and there he's bearing down on me. Hey, Pulitzer, want to see me prove the spin statistics theorem? This is some famous, very deep, important theorem in physics <laughs> proven in the previous century. And he's taken off his pants. I mean, this is, and he's bearing down on me. That's okay, you, you got the pictures. Okay, it turns out he wasn't taken off his pants. He's just taken off his belt. And you the, know, belt, the, the belt is an essential prop. Once he gets to me, he's, he's totally calm. He's not, you know, going nuts. And um, he does this thing with the belt and uh, I'm watching. 
I also remember a couple of days later, he came to me uh, and said, Policer, you remember what I did with the belt? I said, I'm not sure. And so I thought about it a while, and I went to him. I said, I think like this. He said, I think that's better than what I did. <laughs> but anyway, it was a, a thing that you do with a belt. You unbuckle it, you, it, you move the two ends, and you buckle it again, or you unbuckle it, and you twist one of them, and you buckle it again. And uh, since we're not we're uh, you know audio only, I can't do it for you. But they end up the same way. That switching the two compared to turning one around, one of them around three hundred sixty. Is, is this really degrees. the trick where you get yeah you get a twist in the belt, and then if you exchange it, you get a twist also. So you can prove this really deep theorem by showing that just the twist from one is the same as interchanging the two. Well, I'm not the sure if it... Belt pr- theory, yeah. what is that I don't know. Pr- prove. Prove. prove uh, yeah, this <laughs> is the problem. That part it's gets messy. Piece, <laughs> right. It's, it's a difficult piece of the whole thing, which is some deep geometry, and it's important. It has to do I with... I say topology, even. What? I would say okay. topology, yeah. yeah. Which I, is a whole field of mathematics that's just awesome like that. Like... It could be, yeah. Topology is amazing. Well, because that's why it's so great. Because (laughs) it's like these really deep statements, but you can be as simple as like a donut and a coffee cup kind of explanations for it. But um. the deal was that the the theorem is stated about particles, and particle you think of some little point of a thing. But what you learn in relativistic quantum mechanics, so we need relativity and quantum mechanics for this theorem to work. What you learn in relativistic quantum mechanics is you can't describe a particle just as a... It's got some aspect which fills all of space, and it's just sort of a pimple part of the whole thing. So when you move it, you're moving its whole thing, or at least it's got feelers out to everywhere all over so when two things move around each other there's some aspect of them even when they're not touching which are getting tangled or crossed or something so it's that aspect and the tanglingness and the relation of exchanging things versus twisting them one at a time which is a kind of cartoon version with the belt and i I think he's totally right um, the theorem as it's written in paper and publishing is impenetrable as far as I'm concerned. I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to believe that serious people, you know, believed it. They're simpler versions. See, they try, the, the challenge is to prove it in all generality versus I'm happy when you have enough examples. It's called the fallacy of induction, but we do it all the time in our real lives and in science. The sun comes up today and or it came up, you know, 10 years ago. The next day, the next, every day the sun comes up. Does that mean the sun is going to come up tomorrow? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, you believe it. But it, it, it's not logically true, okay? You know, you flip a coin and the first uh, 16 are heads, and you flip it one more time, what's the probability of heads? You can argue about this. I would say the probability of heads is really high because the coin is obviously has two heads, for Christ's right. sake, right? Or the guy knows. I get into trouble with my colleagues with random. Because I don't, I think random means things you don't know, not stuff that's really random. So I asked a guy who wrote a whole book, I shouldn't say this, a whole book about <laughs> random, what it means. He gave me this example of the coin. He said, well, it's like a coin. I said, yeah, you give me a silver dollar with a heads and a tail, and I can flip it in the air and make it come up heads about, I don't know, 70% of the time. It's not so easy with a penny, but with a silver dollar, you can do that. Oh. This. 
you just flip it the same way each time. <laughs> and the reason I picked a big one is it doesn't do that many flips. Right, you count flips. If you insist, no, you don't count. I'm just saying it's got oh, like the do jelly. that many. The jelly one is the same way. Right. There's I mean, this famous thing that people say the jelly is always going to hit the floor first. And you can do an experiment where it turns out the only reason it happens the, that it hits the jelly hits first. It has nothing to do with like it's heavy or anything like that. It's because you always do it from a countertop that's 30 inches off the ground. If you take the same thing and do it up higher, it'll flip the other way. Wow. And so if wow. you just do something exactly the same way, it's going to come out the exact same way again. Well, up to quantum mechanical randomness, which is also If a upsetting. roulette wheel only had four <laughs> slots and you allowed the guy to start it out slowly... Would you be surprised if he had good aim and could, True. you know, hit one of them more right. often than a quarter of the time? No, the way they do it in the, you know, when they take your money is they're actually 38 slots, not 36, 36 numbers. And there's a lot of them, so 38 slots, and he gives it this fast spin. Let's run around, around, around. And unless the table is crooked, it's pretty well distributed. But <laughs> look, if you believe in physics, you believe that where it ends up had to do with what he did. Right. I believe that. We got to go to Vegas together. <laughs> Use science. We take over. Yeah. Plus card counters. They don't, they don't, they, they kick them out. I know. It's yeah. almost like, but they're playing by the rules. It's like illegal to be smart there. Yeah. Well, they, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I think not, they make that Yeah, that, that makes sense. You're just like seeing, you're, you're doing math. <laughs> they don't like winners. It's it's one thing like if physicists. you're cheating, but counting cards, I never understood that. That's literally you're, you're assessing the situation. It is fair. They always have the signs when you walk in, no physicists allowed, though. <laughs> it's totally fair. <laughs> the, but the other, one more thing I wanted to mention, because I think this is uh, super awesome, is that uh, you're the one of the few Nobel, possibly the only Nobel Prize winner to have played uh, in physics to have played another... Uh, physicist in a movie. <laughs> I think this is oh, my major, favorite anecdote of it. A major motion picture. Yeah. I li- it's a good movie. I like it. Oh, I, I, I don't. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can tell you what happened to it. Um, the director who had directed a marvelous movie, uh, The Killing Fields, about Cambodia. Mm-hmm. Well, he in his is subs- that the same director? Yeah, yeah, Roland okay. Jaffe. And he had this thing of authenticity and real people. He made a movie called The Mission with Robert De Niro, and I forgot who the other guy was, but it was missionaries in South America, mm-hmm. and he had indigenous people playing indigenous people. Um, I should try to... I, I think of, there's a third one, which likewise... But it turned out that casting physicists was much harder finding them and to put them on the screen than finding indigenous people in the Amazon or Cambodian refugees. Wow. He ended up with actually one. (laughs) Um, So what are the reasons I'm inspired by the story, though, is that I hope someday I can play you in a movie. (laughs) And then that way I'll win a Nobel Prize. So I'll be the the only... Nobel Prize winning physicist who play a Nobel Prize winning physicist who played a (laughs) prize winning physicist. That's a career. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see how that could go wrong. So did um, they set out to cast an actual physicist? Uh, they were looking for lots. And um, someone who, a friend of mine, somehow the casting director got to him. And so they interviewed people and, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. Do you have anybody to suggest? He suggested me, so I got a call. And we had several rounds of uh, being filtered by, you know, the casting director and her assistant, and then an appointment with the director, and then a screen uh, test or whatever. And uh, was it filmed in Los Alamos? 
No, no, no. It was oh. filled in uh, Durango, Mexico, a major drug hub. Oh, and okay. the director... <laughs> Los Alamos is a major drug hub now, I think. Or at least... <laughs> One of his problems was he didn't understand that you have to bribe people all the time. So he was uh, okay. hassled oh, by wow. the people who you had to bribe. Were um, you nervous in the audition? Or was it yeah, really an well, audition? Even, like, I've been to, like, hundreds. It's still very nerve-wracking. Uh, to go to an audition. No, but that's because that's your your view of yourself and your job and your career. Mm-hmm. You see, it gets really easy if you're waiting for your Nobel Prize <laughs> to show <know>. up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need this. <laughs> uh, no, I. You know, I mean, I remember I had a friend at the time who was an actor who warned me about how. Um, boring it would be to go on location and sit for days on end waiting for the director to say you now there mm-hmm. and most of the time you don't do anything so he on the one hand tried to tell me that on the other hand about half an hour later he called me back and said uh do you have the contact number for those people and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know he could well, use a job i've worked in los alamos let me assure you that uh it's also very boring <laughs> so to sit there. Uh, the movie Infinity, I don't know if you've seen it, Matthew Broderick's representation of Feynman and his first uh, wife. That's a really good movie. I love it. That's actually filmed in Los Alamos. And I recognize, I mean, I, that, I'm like, I recognize the spots in that. And I re- well, recommend they, you see that uh, one. Roland Joffe did a lot of work to make it look like Los Alamos, but he delivered, he sold the film before he made it and delivered a longer film than the backers wanted. Uh, so it got okay. cut a lot. Um, I like to tell people, I don't know if it's true, but I, I repeat things shamelessly that I got paid more per word than, um, uh, Paul Newman. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever feel like you wanted to keep acting after that or uh, were there jobs offered to you after that? No, but there were, I thought it was sad cases. There were civilians who had that experience. And then thought that they could turn it into a career, and I don't know how exactly how they did, but it, it's a tough life unless you're Paul Newman, and um, you know you you or miscalculate Jimmy, because the, the, <laughs> the, the when you're being paid, that's good money, but uh, there's long stretches in between. So no, I didn't. Uh, I never saw any offers that really were uh, what I was looking for. <laughs> Okay, so in this part, um, I have news stories, and I'm just going to go over those news stories, and then this one particularly I, I like because I'm a nuclear physicist, is that a company I've known about for a while um, suddenly made a public announcement, and this is a company called uh, Tri-Alpha Energy. It's a very well-funded, privately uh, privately funded company, and they just announced uh, that they have been able to get their machine to generate uh, hydrogen-boron fusion much longer than uh, any, anybody else, and that the only limit they have right now is the size and energy input into their machine. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because these kinds of stories come out like about once a day, except I happen to know in this particular case that this is a very legitimate find, and it's, so it's very exciting for me. I think. Well, as an expert on hydrogen boron fusion... <laughs> <or> that- <laughs> <laughs> Well, the world experts, okay, uh-huh. and the people who spend the money by the billions have been saying this for many decades. About hydrogen boron or no, just no, fusion? No, 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 in general, about fusion. Mm-hmm. 20 years away, you know, too cheap to meter, uh-huh. and that's what it was when I was a kid. Yep, and that and was the word <laughs> from the world <laughs> experts. Uh-huh. And the people, you know, testifying before Congress and the people getting the appropriations and building. Oh. 
the microphone just uh, tanked. That's uh, that's the NSA controlling with micro right. uh, actuators. A good mic stand every... is a good mic stand is twenty years away. It's... There you go. That's, I think we got it. Yeah. I just won't touch. I just got so worked up about fusion. <laughs> well, no, about uh, PR to hustle to get money for research that you want to do. Yeah, and that is a. And it's there's a... usually some truth to the release. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're often timed at crucial times, and uh, I don't know. I don't well, hold my I've breath on Well, I very that. strange and suspicious that this company has been operating in secret, and then I thought they were going to do that for a while, and it's a little strange that they would suddenly go so public about it. That oh, that might be a money thing. Right uh, I was going to say, watch watch the money trail. Uh-huh. Who's going public? Who's raising money? Who's one? But anyway. Um, uh, there's something in, I didn't read it, in, with traditional fusion, neutrons are a, a huge problem. Yep, and this is a neutronic. A nope. neutronic. This yep. is cool. We should have a whole segment on <laughs> a neutronic. You got a world expert there. Because with the traditional things, that the neutrons produced turn the stainless steel into cottage cheese or dog shit. And, <laughs> you know, it might be too cheap to meter while it was stainless steel, but it's turned into this pile of highly radioactive right. dog shit. And what are you going to do? Yep, this is, this is definitely a huge problem. That's it- an engineering problem that we you know, haven't addressed because we, we, <laughs> we haven't been problem. able to produce that many neutrons, actually. I hope the radioactive dog shit is addressed in the next presidential campaign because it's a <laughs> big problem be, yeah. in this country. We should ask Trump how he likes... Yeah, Mexico uh, keeps sending those nuclear dog shit over, man. We don't like it. of it. Yeah. He's probably be like, try alpha, I like it, not, uh, not their competitor, not classy. Like deter- <laughs> All right, that's the worst Trump interpretation ever. Yeah. Um, I think this is funny. They managed to find uh, in, in this article that was in uh, uh, Science Magazine, they found somebody who was one of the competitors who said, well, unless you learn to control and tame the hot gas, it's never going to work. <laughs> they, had, they seem to have, well, anyway. Um, <laughs> I just think it's funny that the first negative comment they found was like, Oh, the person next door who's probably claiming the same thing. A professor I had in graduate school referred to something as the Stellarator principle. So uh, the Stellarator was a research plasma research machine built um, at Princeton, which mm-hmm. was a, the major, I don't know if it still is because I haven't followed it. But they the, shut most of that down. The, it yeah. was for decades the yeah. major uh, research facility for fusion mm-hmm. uh, physics. And this guy is a particle physicist, so his skeptical view of the Stellarator was this machine so complicated in its geometry and structure that no one had a clue whether it would work or how it would work. So we're going to build it because it might. (laughs) (laughs) And he referred to that as the Stellarator principle. That's awesome. Yeah, we have one at uh, UCLA, too. We we have a fusion reactor, and it doesn't work as a fusion reactor, but the plasma group still... Do, you know. They don't use it for that? So do they have no, no, dead no, students no, and bunk beds there? They got hot rent? gas. <laughs> they make mac gas. and cheese with it. <laughs> That's right. They That's have a plasma. A 40 megawatt, <laughs> Heat it up enough. Uh, yeah. It is a 40 megawatt giant resistor. It's a heater. It's basically like a blow dryer, but 
very <laughs> very big. But they have the you know the power Can company has to bring it. Um, yeah, probably. The heater's broken in my apartment. Oh, if you fund it, they'll let you do whatever you want with it. <laughs> Sweet, dude. Yeah, but people have been starting uh, plugging in to the power because so much power is coming to that one spot. And originally, or I think they were th- even thinking they might get power back. I don't, I don't know if it went that far, but even just to run the machine takes this enormous amount of power. And so now they're like, "Look, we have dorms. We have there's a hospital nearby to to, to take power out of that." Um, okay, uh, I think we're done for today. Uh, do <laughs> Can you guys I maybe ask yeah, something yeah, on that? Would say Elon Musk be somebody like that with his innovation? I know that's a very pop culture question, you know. No, no, he gave a great. Uh, Caltech commencement uh, speech. Anyway, Elon Musk, what about him? <laughs> well, I'm uh, like, w- would he be considered like a groundbreaking person that's really pushing an envelope? And I know he had trouble with funding also. Um, well, of science? Of, uh, you mean uh, pushing the envelope well, of science? Uh, p- p- pushing the envelope, I guess making the world a better place in, in general terms in okay, some but sense. But just to clarify, wait, 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 he, he figured doesn't really out do... a way to do secure uh, money transactions. Right. And one of my favorite reporters, columnists, newsmen, Bob Shear, he wrote for the LA Times. He also wrote for The Nation. I remember a talk he gave. He said he's traveled around the world. What people really want in every culture, they like to go shopping. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Overwhelmingly. You know, if it's one man and one woman, one vote, if you count all the people, not who's in power, they like to go shopping. They like to go to the market. They like to haggle. So um, one of Musk's comments in the commencement address was, you think you're pursuing something, keep your eyes open, because there might be something along the way which is actually better, has more possibilities, more interesting, might work out better than the thing you think you're doing. Mm -hmm. And he's had that ability. Mm-hmm. And that's how he describes uh, PayPal. Right. They were they had something doing, but they there was a very sad um, thing. Caltech. When I first came, I was introduced to some undergrads who um, were working on music uh, synthesizers, electronic music, and they had these cool sounds that they could generate. And they then went to Hollywood trying to sell them. And their story was they got ripped off because actually nobody bought their stuff, but people used it and it oh, was wow. in the movies. Yeah. What they missed was the fact that they had created a computer interface long before it existed commercially elsewhere where there was a keyboard of a piano, there was a TV screen, and there was a computer monitor. And you could, in any order, back and forth, write music, listen to music, edit music. You could write music on the screen with notation. You could listen to it, play it. You could edit it kind of on the screen. You could edit it from the keyboard, and you could do... So it was like a super word processor for music, and this was 1977, and they they could have made a fortune if that were their thing, but they thought their thing was the music, the sound synthesis. So you got to keep your eyes open. Um, Musk was good with that. Mm -hmm. The guy's got guts. Absolutely. Which is the polite way of saying it. And um, <laughs> he really does. And uh, I guess I was just curious, wondering, because everybody looks up to him like he is like the science messiah. And, you well, know, but I was public. telling you before, so is it, I think once you're on the inside of the science part, you realize right. there's a huge disconnect between right, that's what, what the public see. looks up to. I mean, it's not totally never true it's just mm-hmm. I, I you know it's uh, that's i want to see like the professionals like you guys do you guys also look up to him as somebody well that's, you know sending people across the country at whatever it is 800 miles an hour it's not science you, 
we can do it. There, it's a it's a business question, a cost effective question. Yeah, is that there are many product market uh, visionaries of what was it called the the thing that you stand on that goes segue segway right yeah, I was yeah. going to change the world there are yeah. all kinds of things dude dude who knows he ended um, up dying on a segway yeah oh yeah, that's right irony. he drove off, off a, a cliff. cliff and drowned right Wait. oh probably the drunk. technical people science people a great example it was um uh, uh jobs and wozniak Mm. Because anybody who used computers would ask themselves, why do people need computers? Computers are for doing scientific calculations and for banks to keep track of accounts. What, are people going to uh, keep track of their uh, recipes and pictures of their cats? The answer is, <laughs> you bet they are. <laughs> it's transformed the world, okay? Right. So don't ask. the A very famous, hugely famous mathematician, John von Neumann. You want to give a testimony? I don't know, someone. They can look him up. Huge, genius, math, major figure in mathematics, hired by IBM as a consultant. He screwed them over. How did he screw them over? Because he couldn't imagine that people would need numbers bigger mm. than something or other, and he got them, I don't know the details, but some early operating system, the way it treated numbers was limited in how big they could be because who would ever want it? They asked the wrong guy. Yeah, you know, you ask a guy like Steve Jobs and he, or Carl Sagan, who was an interesting figure in science promoting um, the view of the cosmos. I don't know if it rings a bell with you, but uh, he was very inspiring. On the other hand, my uh, one of my professors in graduate school said that the professor was became a co-author on a paper and it became the professor's, he said at the time, I don't know if it's true, most cited paper. And what was it? He was at a, a buddy with Sagan, and they were out at a restaurant, a dinner, and he's explaining to Sagan how we call it multiplying probabilities. If, if you're trying to figure out, you know, the probability of life on some place or contamination, bugs, you have something that has a probability, but then something else happens subsequently, and that has a probability. And then there's another step which th that has a probability of different outcomes. And the question is, what do you do with this whole chain? And the answer is multiply. And that was my teacher's input into this Carl Sagan question, which uh, I know for some of you that might be, that's higher mathematics, that's way cool. But for some of us, the, the concept of what to do with a chain of probabilities multiplying together is something that we expect at least, you know, the technically hip high school kids to figure out <laughs> so anyway the question of who what is important science and i mean it became it, a foundation of the standards for um contamination or not contamination of space vehicles how clean should they be because we don't want to send uh the common cold to the moon right because the moon men don't i don't know there are a lot of things i don't understand about the real world um <laughs> So why ask a scientist? You know, so I guess it takes questions. somebody like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs to to be have the science mind and connect to know it's how to connect. It's a technical mind. I mean, I draw a distinction, yeah. but it, it's you know technically hip and interested and interested in making big bucks. It's important. Um, I took a career guidance preference test as a college freshman. I went to a Big Ten school, University of Michigan, and they administered. What's called a preference test, that means there aren't right and wrong answers. They ask you things like, 
you know, do you prefer cooked carrots or raw carrots? You go up steps one at a time, two at a time. If you're waiting for an elevator, the door opens and it's crowded and there's an orangutan and a naked something and a what you would do this. So you answer those questions and then they give you career counseling based on your answers. <laughs> it's like a focus group. Um, well, they, they just had this huge database where they followed people. There was no theory. They, for decades, followed up what people then did. Right. And I sat down with someone who knew nothing about me except for my carrots preference. <laughs> As students, we called it the raw carrots, cooked carrots test. That's why I remember that. And this person said, well, music and math, you're in the top three percentile. That's worth pursuing. Business and money, bottom three. Don't even think about <laughs> because it. Because of your carrot preference. They nailed me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Guys, this has been so fun. I have had such a great time. I'm so glad you came to join us. Uh, we, we do have to wrap it up pretty soon. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to quickly plug something and give your Twitter? Yeah, sure. Uh, Twitter, at uh, FunnyAsianDude. And also Instagram is also FunnyAsianDude. You can follow mm -hmm. me there. And Griff? At Griff Pippin, uh, once again, promoting the uh, Redneck with a Passport Tour in Europe. Oh, uh, if awesome. you're going to be in England or Romania or Belgium in the, you know, in the next uh, September, I'll be there. And unfortunately, I think you're going to miss some of our, our episodes coming up. But I, you'll I got come to, right back. I got back. to meet David Pulitzer, and that's all I care all right. about. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm imagine, uh, you don't seem like the Twitter kind of guy. Do you have a, tweet, a Twitter handle? No, or? Twitter, no tweet. In your favorite <laughs> browser of choice, enter Banjo Physics, because one of my kids explained to me, the more people who search for it, the higher it comes up in the search results. So, awesome. Yes. Banjo Physics. Okay, so this has been Surely You're Joking. I had a blast. Uh, I'm uh, Kevin Hickerson, Kevin.Hickerson on Facebook, or at KP Hickerson. And we'll see you. Oh, one more thing. Sorry, one more thing. Uh, tweet at us if you have an opinion about when we'll actually have fusion power. Because every episode we do, yeah, a thing. yeah let's start happen. a hashtag. Wanna, fusion yeah. power. Yeah. Hashtag fusion, fusion power. That one's probably taken, but yeah. oh, well, fusion can, power. Yeah. That's we'll a hashtag. hashtag fusion power too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Someone's gonna think it's like a Gillette commercial ad or something. Uh huh. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks Bye. For Bye. Bye. Bye.